This week on the show, we have a ZFS high availability with asynchronous replication article by Clara Systems for you. And another one about stop blogging and start documenting by Michael Dexter. 2023 in review from the FreeBSD Foundation about infrastructure and the money and the things that it bought for the FreeBSD project. A Nova Custom NV41 laptop review, which was very detailed by Celine. OpenBSD video audio screen recording setup, quite easy and straightforward and everything you need to know. HDMI audio sound patches into GhostBSD source codes, the DSA removal from OpenSSH we cover real quick, and Nintendo VI V <laughs> and uh, the NetBSD uh, patches that went into that, as well as other NetBSD patches that reduce boot times. Exciting news and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 545, BSD Audio Enhancements, recorded on the 24th of January 2024. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. We are glad that you are here with us, listening to the latest news in the BSD space. And we have an episode for you prepared that is a little bit of everything, I would say. So we start off with headlines, as always, from Clara Systems. This time, it's about ZFS, high availability with asynchronous replication and ZREP. So that means it's about ZFS, who would have thought? <laughs> but the Clara people are no strangers to ZFS. On the contrary, they have uh, professional ZFS support, and they also blog a lot about this cool file system with integrated storage manager. So they start the article with, with the ZFS send and receive commands, data can be synchronized to a replica system and kept up to date with incremental changes when using such a redundant replica to provide highly available storage services, it is useful for failovers between the two systems to be quick and reliable. So uh, star, to start, we discussed the advantages and disadvantages of leveraging ZFS replication to provision a highly available system and consider some alternatives. There are a number of tools for simplifying the use of ZFS send and receive. In this article, we show how to use ZREP, which is linked to uh, the, its homepage, which is particularly focused on the failover use case. We will also cover important practical ZFS send and receive considerations, like keeping quotas and properties in sync, handling changes to the dataset structure, and interactions with other tools that use snapshots and holds. Okay, providing highly availability or highly available storage. For the purposes of this article, we will consider the design of a system where separate redundant systems are used to provide highly available storage, but we're not focusing on hardware redundancy, we're focusing on full system redundancy. So in their own article, Achieving RPO and RTO Objectives with ZFS, they link to that, we discuss the terms RPO, which is the recovery point objective, and RTO, which is the recovery time objective. These terms encapsulate key questions of how old the backup data is in case of a failure and how long it takes to recover systems to full operation. 
Assessing acceptable values for RPO and RTO serves as part of a more formalized approach towards designing a system. While these terms are usually associated with disaster recovery, we aren't dealing solely with what might be considered a disaster. Often, it's useful to be able to move services over to a standby replica to enable routine engineering work, whether that be security updates or to, uh, to operating systems, electrical safety tests, physical hard removes, or any of the myriad other reasons that come up when managing systems. Often, such activities can be scheduled in advance to take advantage of times where the effects on any disruptions are minimized, and when planning for serious disasters, an online replica is not a substitute for offline data backups. With ZFS replication, a snapshot is taken at a particular point in time and then transferred to the remote system. Subsequent runs will complete more quickly since ZFS inherently knows what has changed and therefore only sends the changes, so there is less data to catch up on each time. When running successive replication jobs, a dataset will moderate levels of churn can settle down with each send, taking no more than a couple of seconds. On a heavily loaded system, my typical worst case still sees datasets transferring in roughly one minute. While you should take your own measurements, this does provide a rough idea of the general orders of magnitude you might expect for the RPO metric. For some use cases, even a one-minute RPO could be unacceptable. There are other approaches to synchronize storage that keep a replica more closely in sync. The HastD daemon on FreeBSD and DRBD on Linux take the approach of replicating data at block level to a separate machine over a network. Another approach employs mirroring across storage exported from distinct disk arrays using protocols such as iSCSI or fiber channels. With these approaches, the operating system will only report writes as being completed when they are written to all replicas. So an advantage here of ZFS replication is that it is fundamentally very simple. The standby system just contains your files and has no complex services that are trying to communicate back to the production system. This can pay dividends when it comes to worst case for the RTO metric. Complex systems fail in complex ways and highly or high available clusters can work beautifully with failovers going practically unnoticed. But when they do fail, getting a degraded service running again can be non-trivial. So, uh, jump ahead a little bit uh, to deploying ZREP. ZREP simplifies ZFS replication for the use case we're demonstrating. However, we'll also discuss many concepts and aspects of ZFS that are not specific to ZREP. ZREP itself is not available from ports, but, it's only, uh, but it only consists of a single shell script. The stable version of ZREP needs KSH as its operating shell, though the newer version from GitHub can also use the bash. The script needs to be installed in the directory that is included in the dollar $path variable on both systems. On FreeBSD, you may want to change the first line to point to the correct location of KSH or bash in user local bin. Initially, it may be useful to set up keys to allow passwordless SSH logins for root between the two systems. Uh, this was covered in a previous article. They linked to that as well. You may prefer uh, later, an alternative to SSH, perhaps to use SMS allow to avoid using root, but a familiar tool like SSH is convenient. And so for initial test, we create an empty ZFS dataset and run ZREP in it, specifying the dataset, the remote host name, and the remote dataset. They show the output of these commands. And any changes made to the dataset on the first host can now be synchronized to the second system. So they run ZREP sync all, and then it goes sending all these snapshots that happened uh, after the first one. And they have the output after uh, it's finished. Also running expire, 
tests and expiring ZREP snaps on the ZREP test dataset. This has created a snapshot, a tank ZREP at test ZREP underscore 000001, and then <laughs> and send it to the other system and finished off by clearing up the old snapshots. By default, ZREP keeps the last five snapshots. You can see these with, uh, for example, ZFS list dash T snapshot tank slash or whatever pool name you have slash ZREP dash test. The state is held in ZFS properties, so they can be listed. So these are custom properties. These are the ones with the colon in between. And they list a couple of things that ZREP uses internally to see how many uh, it already has done, for example. Various aspects of ZREP can be adjusted by modifying shell variables that are initialized in the script. The script start by sourcing etc default slash ZREP. So you can either create that file or modify the script directly. Those variables that one might want to tweak are clearly marked by comments. Okay. So uh, one of these comments, uh, or one of these variables, you will get to see later, zrep underscore send underscore flags equals minus C. This both minimizes the size of the send stream, but also avoids the remote system needing to recompress the data. Then they talk a little bit about automating syncs. In a typical envir environment or deployment, it is useful to automate the running of syncs to keep the replica as up-to-date as possible. A script can run syncs continuously in a loop. With multiple data sets, running things in parallel further helps performance. ZFS send tends to produce stream data in bursts, which doesn't make optimal use of a network connection. And they talk a little bit about more. Add that to CronTap, for example. Then they have a section on failover. To have the two servers exchange roles, we need to only run ZREP failover tanks that rep test on the current production system. This performs a final sync and then swaps the ZFS properties around. In particular, it sets the data set to be read-only on the new standby and writable on the new production system. Ah, clever. In actual cases, performing a failover is usually somewhat more involved. First, services that might create snapshots or perform automatic runs of ZREP sync need to be disabled on the former primary, and any network services that you want to migrate must also be configured properly on both ends, along with primary ownership of the data. You may also have, want to have a particular IP address or hostname associated with the current production system that needs to move, and ZREP has facilities for handling unplanned failover scenario where the standby system needs to take over or control. This can be important if a production system fails and can't be contacted to ensure a clean handover. Uh, the article is quite long, but uh, definitely well worth reading because you will see sections about how to properly sync the properties and quotas for the data sets that you uh, copy. And for example, interactions with other snapshots, maybe from another manual snapshot that you did or another system that also does automatic snapshots. A little bit of troubleshooting and a conclusion, which reads, ZFF replication enables the most consistent backups, shorter recovery times, and improved service availability. Take advantage of all that ZFS has to offer with Clara's ZFS support subscription. And with Clara's expert guidance, businesses can unlock unprecedented potential for stability and data protection. Interesting way of doing it. Um, another way of doing it. There's many ways to, to achieve achieve that so it's a, it's a good one i'm going to go and have a look at that uh there was a few key points in that article that uh i've gone oh that's probably a better way of doing something so um yeah i'm going to take something away from that and uh go and put it into some practice moving on there is a blog post from michael dexter over on the call for testing blog 
it is titled Stop Blogging and Start Documenting. So the blog post was from the 15th of January, so it's uh, reasonably fresh, but um, there's some quite um, good notes in here for a takeaway for all of us, really. Uh, Call for testing is just as guilty and the projects are not blameless. There are many excellent BSD-related blogs out there, but they might be harmful, however, and call for testing was just as much of a part of this problem. Why? Because technical blogs are often provided exclusive documentation that is not available anywhere else, but there's no formal pipeline to get that wisdom into upstream documentation. As upstream destinations, however, projects have not achieved the friction-free contribution experience that some aim to achieve. This has to change to advance the craft. To their credit, in the GNU Linux space, the contributors to the ArchWiki have made the resource so authoritative that it is often valuable to non-GNU Linux users. Hats off to them. By contrast, the FreeBSD Wiki has been described as where good documentation goes to die which is sad because the FreeBSD wiki is one of the most friction-free opportunities for people to contribute to FreeBSD documentation. This has to change. Blogs like Call for Testing, at best, get content upstream organically and at worst, unintentionally discourage improvement of the official documentation, even if simply for the want of enough hours in a day. I shifted from call for testing to microblogging on social media platforms and leave my formal documentation to papers and conference talks, but neither is truly upstream. Admitting my guilt, and I applied to be a FreeBSD docs committer in response to the visceral action I had to the kernel debug crash dump chapter, I was astonished to how complicated the committer onboarding process was, and I thank you, Benedict, for your patience. I had fresh production user knowledge to contribute, but even the onboarding docs became a tar pit of things to fix. The SVN to Git migration compounded this problem, not to mention the fact that any healthy open source project is a moving target. Fast forward to mid-2023 and the Jail Zones production user group was collectively horrified when we saw the FreeBSD Jails wiki page I updated the page based on the visceral reaction, but the negative visceral reaction are not a substitute motivator for contribution. In fact, they're terrible, but they're effective. Around the same time, I noticed that the FreeBSD handbook introduction included deprecated platforms and failed to mention that FreeBSD was a good for storage and virtualization systems. I submitted a pull request to the FreeBSD mirror on GitHub to give this contribution vector a try. The result was a five-month process, some of which was squarely in my court and some which was dependent on reviewers and committers. The GitHub mirror was marked experimental and has pull request activity on all repos, but does not say much to help set expectations. Thank you, Warner Losh, Sergio Caravilla and others for overseeing FreeBSD pull requests made via GitHub nonetheless. So what could we all do to improve the situation? Keep blogging, of course. Your contributions might never leave your notebook otherwise. Do please, however, think about what content you can upstream and what contribution vector would have the least friction. In the case of FreeBSD, apply for a wiki account and give it a go. The wiki's best content does not receive the attention it deserves, but it's a great place 
to incubate content either way. Finally, end the pull request experiment, either by sunsetting it or making it an official contribution vector. I have no opinion as to if pull requests should go to self-hosted repo or GitHub because I see the advantages and disadvantages of both. The daring long-term question is, should FreeBSD documentation move entirely to a pull request model? I'm in no position to say. Finally, I'm experimenting with Collabora Office for my own self-hosted documentation, and I'm pleased to report that the production user call co-host, Antriag Ventran, has it building natively on FreeBSD. This is exciting news. You're uh, part of the docs community, Benedict. I am, um, yeah. What, what input do you have in regards to this? So, um, typically we have uh, contributions that come in via, you know, the classical uh, GitHub uh, or uh, people who use Bugzilla and send in their patches. But recently we also have a couple of people who provide the patches uh, and changes in our review system in Fabricator post a patch there for review and comment and add the docs people there so that we can review them and comment. And that helps a lot with uh, integrating it and committing it later once it's uh, finished. Mm, so, yeah. There's, yeah. there's some, I suppose there's some um, points to take on there. Um, you know, it's really just, you know, outlining uh, one person's experience and seeing what, you know, issues they see in their eyes. You know, it's, it's, up to all of us to you know provide you know uh, concise documentation and you know review other people's documentation too you know it's not just about submitting it's like you know if somebody's put something up uh in reviews to have a look at you know go have a look at it and provide your input and feedback otherwise and documentation you know, can never have enough people right there's so many right. pages and the handbook alone or any other article that we have or other docs or books that are just too much for a few handful of people. But documentation is not just writing the whole time, right? Or adding stuff. It's also making it easier to understand, make maybe finding grammar that may be a bit off or that occasional typo that you would be sneakily hidden in there. Or if you want to illustrate our docs, that also helps the reader to understand better what the content is about. Yeah, and, you know, illustration of, you know, system diagrams and that sort of stuff is not, now everybody's forte and um you know sometimes uh you know a picture is a thousand words so um being able to illustrate as well uh, what people are describing in in words all right uh let's go into the news roundup this time this is uh the FreeBSD foundation has still 2023 in review on all the work they did and supported and this one is about 2023 in review about the infrastructure and they write among the myriad of ways the freebsd foundation supports freebsd helping to maintain the project's infrastructure is one of the most important we worked in conjunction with the cluster administration team to ensure they have the hardware they need to keep everything running smoothly in 2023 the freebsd foundation ordered 15 new systems as part of a cluster refresh the system specifications were determined by the cluster administration team and consist of five package builders, three web servers, two package mirrors, two uh, continuous integration servers, 
uh, two firewalls slash routers and one admin bastion. And with five new beefy package builders, expect a quicker turnaround from when updates are committed until the associated packages are available. Previously, users on both coasts of North America can expect faster package downloads with the new package mirrors, and the continuous integration or CI servers will help catch problems introduced to the source repository sooner by launching new builds each time changes are committed. The firewalls and admin bastion are required to install a new FreeBSD cluster site. This uh, or these new servers originally intended for the cluster site in New Jersey, USA. However, the data center was unable to accommodate the new servers, so the foundation accepted a generous offer from NYI to host a new site in Chicago. In addition to the new servers, the foundation also purchased two new PDUs, or power distribution units, and has allocated funding for data center staff and members of the cluster administration team to install the new site in early 2024. The total investment for this cluster refresh is expected to be over 100,000 US dollars. Wow. Our efforts to sustain the project infrastructure are only possible because of support from the FreeBSD community. Yes, thank you all who have invested in FreeBSD so far this year. And if you're able, please consider adding your support in 2023 or 2024 now. And yes, this is important because without hardware, the projects can't do the work they are doing and developers will have no way of like, for example, building for different architectures, they don't necessarily have all of them at home, but these what, uh, this is what these package builders do. Yeah, I think people forget um, how much load is on the machine during a build phase, and they basically, you know, electronics wear out. And, um, you know, they're constantly under, you know, continuous integration and build uh, to distribute, you know, fresh new packages for everyone. So... Um, this sort of stuff uh, is required by the projects and um, on a very frequent basis. So where you can contribute to any of the projects, please do. Yeah, that's keeping the project alive and the lights on really. And that's also contributing to a lot of quality that the project then provides for the users and for the developers. Moving on to the next article, uh, which is uh, over on Celine's blog, The Data Swamp. Uh, dataswamp.org. Uh, so this is in regards to a laptop review, uh, the Nova Custom NV41. Uh, so first off is a disclaimer. So we'll get that out of the road. Uh, hello, today I present you with quite a special blog post. Results from a partnership with the PC manufacturer Nova Custom. I offered them to write an honest review for their product and also share my feedback as a user in exchange for an NV41 laptop. This is an exceptional situation. I insist that it is not a sponsorship. I actually needed a laptop for my freelance work and it turns that they agreed. In our arrangements, I added that I would return the laptop in the case uh, I wouldn't like it. I don't want to generate electronic waste and companies money for nothing. I have no plans to turn my blog into an advertisement platform and do this on a regular basis. Stars aligned well here. Nova Custom is making the only modern laptop for Cubes OS certified, and the CEO is a very open source friendly person. So, the disclaimer out of the way, everybody knows the situation. We can move on to the introduction. In this blog post, I share my experience using an NV41 laptop from Nova Custom. I tried many operating systems on it for a while, run some benchmarks, and ultimately used QoS on it for a month and a half for my freelance work. 
Uh, there's a couple of links there for the Nova Custom official website and the specific uh, laptop store webpage. So the machine itself, this is a 14 inch laptop, the best form factor in my opinion for being comfortable and used in a long time while being easy to carry. It looks great with its metal look with bluish reflections and the engraved logo NV on the cover. The logo can be obviously customized. The frame feels solid and high-end. I'm not afraid to carry it or manipulate it. Compared to my ThinkPad T470, that's a change. I always fear to press on its plastic frame too much when carrying with a single hand. The power button is on the right side. This is quite unusual. It looks great. There are LEDs around the power plug near the power button that tell you the state of the system, running, off, sleeping, and if the battery is running low or charging. It's running the open source firmware Dash Arrow Core Boot and optionally the security orientated hardware heads can be installed. And this links to the uh, Dash Aero Core Boot official website and the uh, Heads Open Source Firmware official website uh, in the blog post. So the packaging and unbo unboxing section. This machine came in a box, a uh, containing a box, containing a box, the actual box with the laptop inside. It was greatly packaged. The laptop screen had a removable sleeve that can be reused. I appreciated this as it's smart, it's possible to put it back in case you don't use the laptop for a long time or want to sell it later. The box contained the laptop, the power supply and the power plug. The full length of the power supply is 2 meters, which is great. I hate laptop chargers that only have a 1 meter cable. The hardware consists of a CPU i7-1260P, which is uh, four performance cores with hyper-threading and eight efficiency cores, uh, two times 32 gigabytes of 3200 megahertz RAM, a Samsung 980 Pro 2 terabyte NVMe drive, uh, Blob 3 Aetherus uh, GCNFA222 Wi-Fi, ABGN and Bluetooth 4.0. The screen is a 14-inch 1080p, which gives a resolution of 1920 by 1080, 98% uh, sRGB 60Hz anti-glare treatment. And it comes in at 1.4 kilograms. The default wireless card is an Intel AX200-201 uh, compatible with Wi-Fi 6 and Bluetooth 5.2, but I received the Blob Free card, which was a convenient for most operating systems as it doesn't need firmware. It works out of the box on Duix, for example. There is uh, options to remove the webcam or add a slider to it, a screen privacy filter or screw, uh, secure screws and tape for packaging to be sure that the laptop hasn't been intercepted during transit. You can also choose the keyboard layout from a large list or even have your own layout. Kudos to Nova Custom for guaranteeing the sell of replacement parts for at least seven years after you buy the laptop from them. They also provide a PDF with full details about the internals. Uh, onto the CPU. Uh, this is my very first hybrid CPU. It has four performance cores capable of hyper-threading and eight efficiency cores that should draw less power at the expense of being slower. I made a benchmark 
only on Cubes OS to compare the different cores to a Ryzen 5 5600X and to my T470 i5-7300U. And there's links there to the Phronix benchmark links and um, the Cubes OS forum hybrid CPU benchmark performance testing. If your operating system doesn't know, Linux does, how to make use of EP cores like OpenBSD or FreeBSD, it will use them like if they were similar, so no worry here. However, the performance and battery savings aren't optimized because the system won't balance the load at the right place. So too long, didn't read. Uh, the P cores compete with my desktop Ryzen 5 5600X and the E cores are faster than the i5-7300U. Linux and Zen in Cubes OS does a great job at balancing the workload at the right place so you don't have to worry about pinning a specific task to a P or E core pool. Coil and wine noise. I think this deserves an entry because it plague, a play, it's a plague on many modern computers. If you don't know about it, it's an electronic noise that happens under certain conditions. On my T470, it's when the battery was charging. I've been able to get some coil wine noise only if you force the CPU to the maximum in the operating system instead of letting the computer scale the frequency. This resulted in no performance improvement and some coil wine noise. Uh, in my daily normal usage with Linux or Cubes OS, I never had coil wine, but on OpenBSD, for which the frequency management is still not good with these modern CPUs, Intel P-State support isn't great, uh, there's constant noise. However, using OpenBSD FREQD, as we've covered in previous episodes of the, the podcast, uh, reduced the noise to almost nothing, but still appeared a bit on CPU load. Screen. Screen coloring is excellent, which is expected as it covers 98% of the sRGB palette. It's really bright and rarely turn, um, turn the brightness more than 50%. I didn't try to use it outdoors, but the brightness at full level should allow reading the screen. Sound system. I've been surprised by the speakers. The audio quality is good, up to 80% of the max volume, but then the quality drops when you set it too high. I have no way to measure it, but the speakers appear to be quite loud compared to my other laptops when set to 100%. I don't recommend doing this um, due to the quality drop, but it can be handy sometimes. The headphones ports work fine, there's no noises, and it's able to drive my DT770 Pro 80 ohms. Cooling. I think the cooling system is one of the best parts of the laptop. It's always running at 10% of its speed and is inaudible. Under a huge load, the fan can be heard, but it's still less loud than my idling silent desktop. There is a special key combination, which is function one that triggers the turbo fan mode, forcing them to run at 100%. It's recommended if the laptop is used to run at full CPU 24 seven for a long period of time. However, this is a loud as one RU rack server. For a comprehensive comparison, let's say it's as annoying as a microwave device. Keyboard. The keyboard isn't bad, but it's not good either. Typing on it is pleasant, but it's no match against my mechanical keyboards. The touch is harder than my Lenovo T470 laptop. I think it feels like the most modern laptop keyboards. 
check out the layout for the keys like home and page up, page down. On mine, they are tiny keys near the arrows. This may not be to your taste. Type is quite silent and there is five levels of backlight. I don't really like this feature, so I turned it off, but it's there if you like it. The touchpad uh, may be a no-go for many. There are no extra physical buttons, but you can physically click on the bottom area to make hold a click. It also features no track point, the little joystick in the middle of the keyboard. However, it is large service and can make use of multi-touch clicks. While I was annoyed at first, because I'm used to the ThinkPad's extra physical buttons, over time I got used to the multi-touch click. Click is different depending on the number of fingers used or the split area click where the click in the bottom left does a left click and in the middle does a middle click and on the bottom right does a right click. Suspend and resume. Suspend and resume feature works as expected on Linux and Cubes OS. Closing the lid correctly triggers the suspend function. Webcam, nothing special to say about it. It's like most laptop webcams, there's a narrow angle and the image quality is good enough to show your face during a VoIP meeting. Battery life. This is the short version of the battery life. I tested the battery using different operating systems, OpenBSD, CubesOS, Fedora, and Ubuntu, and different methods. There are more details later in the text, but long story short, you can expect the following. Battery life went idle, six hours. Battery life with normal usage, three hours to five hours, reviewing videos, browsing the web, playing emulated games, code development, and some compilation. Battery life and continuous heavy use, two hours. I accidentally played a long video with no hardware acceleration. It was using 500% CPU. She also goes into different uh, operating systems. Uh, moving into the operating systems, uh, we've got 4.3, which is the BSD systems. I tried OpenBSD and FreeBSD with the laptop. I always have a bad luck with NetBSD, so I preferred not to try it. And Dragonfly BSD support should be pretty close to FreeBSD for which it didn't work well. OpenBSD. I tried OpenBSD 7.4 and current. Everything went well except for the Aetherus e Wi-Fi card that isn't supported, but this was to be expected. If you want the NV41 with OpenBSD, you need to take the Intel AX200-201, which is supported by the IWX driver. Suspend and resume works fine. The touchpad is using the three zones behavior by default where you need to tap left, center, right, bottom to make them left, middle, right click. The webcam and sound card work fine too. The GPU is fully supported. You can use it for 3D rendering. I've been able to play PSP game using PSPP, SSPP emulator. OpenBSD doesn't support hardware accelerator video encoding or decoding at all, so I didn't test it. FreeBSD. I installed FreeBSD 4.0 RC4 with ZFS on root and full disk encryption. The process went fine. I had Wi-Fi at the installer step thanks to the blob free Aetherus card. However, once booted in the system, I didn't succeed to get X to run. The GPU isn't supported yet and using vSIM didn't, the display didn't work for me. Suspend and resume didn't work either. I gave another try with Ghost BSD 23.2. 10.1 in hope I did something wrong on FreeBSD 14, like a misconfiguration as I've never had any good experience with FreeBSD on the desktop with regards to the setup. 
The Ghost BSD failed to start X and was continuously displaying its logo on the screen, only booting in safe mode, allowing me to figure out what was wrong. I was really surprised that the hardware is still too new for FreeBSD while OpenBSD support is almost excellent. Six, conclusion. I'm glad I dared asking Nova Custom about this partnership about the NV41. This is exactly the laptop I needed. It's reliable, no weird features. It's almost full open source, at least for the software stack. Very powerful. And I can buy replacement parts for at least seven years if I break something. It's also silent. I despise having a laptop with a high pitch fan noise. I still have to play with uh, Dash Aero Core Boot, but I'm really new to this open source firmware world, so I have to learn before trying weird and dangerous things. I would like to try Heads for its anti-evil made features. Um, it should be possible to install it on Dash Aero systems soon. Writing this blog post was extremely hard. I had to stay mindful that this must be an honest and neutral review. Writing about a product you are happy with leads to some excitement moments and one may forget and share some little annoyances because it's not that bad. But I did my best to stay neutral when writing and this is the agreement that I had with Nova Custom. Honestly, honestly is important value to me. You dear readers certainly trust me to some point. I don't want to lose your trust. Uh, we skipped quite a significant amount of that blog post. Uh, it goes into detail with other operating systems and a bit of other parts of the uh, power consumption. So uh, go and check it out after the show. She did a fine job reviewing it and it was neutral enough so that uh, the review is actually quite uh, quite good, I think. All right. Uh, then we stay a little bit with OpenBSD. Uh, this one is about OpenBSD video audio screen recording, so a little bit uh, of three. And this is from Rafael Sadowski. And with a German uh, domain, I'm fairly sure that's his name, or that's at least close to pronouncing it. And he writes, uh, Welcome to my comprehensive guide on recording audio and desktop screen on OpenBSD. In this blog post, I'm excited to share my personal setup and approach to efficiently capturing high-quality audio and video on one of the most secure and stable operating systems available. Whenever you're a professional content creator, a developer looking to record tutorials, or simply an OpenBSD enthusiast, this guide is tailored to help you navigate the intricacies of being or of screen recording in this unique environment. Alongside this step-by-step -step tutorial, I've also included a practical YouTube video at the bottom to demonstrate the quality and effectiveness of the recordings you can achieve with this setup. So let's dive in and explore the world of audio and video recording on OpenBSD. First and foremost, it's, uh, let's address the security aspect. OpenBSD, known for its robust security measures, has both microphone and video recording disabled by default. This is a thoughtful feature to protect your privacy, but when it comes to recording audio and video, we need to enable these capabilities. For those occasions when you need them temporarily, you can conveniently activate them using CCTL. However, if you find yourself acquiring these features more regularly, a more permanent solution is to add the necessary configs to sysctl.conf. This approach ensures that your settings are preserved even after a system reboot, streamlining your recording process for future sessions. And to do that temporarily, the two sysctls you want to do is current.audio.record setting to 1 and current.video.record setting to 1. And if you want to do that permanently, then add exactly this to ctl.conf in etc okay microphone setup 
in my personal setup. I've opted for a high-quality external USB microphone, the Samsung Technologies Samsung Q2U microphone. This choice significantly improves the audio quality of my recordings. To confirm its connectivity and ensure everything is functioning correctly with OpenBSD, I use the dmessage command. When I run this command, it displays the microphone's details as follows, indicating the system has successfully recognized and it is ready to utilize this external device. So it provides a couple lines from dmessage that uh, are about this uh, microphone. And to capture a monitor mix of all audio playback, it's essential to create a monitor sub-device with SND IOD. This step is crucial as it enables the recordings of all audio outputs simultaneously, providing a comprehensive mix of the sound being played back. This process ensures that every element of your audio landscape is captured accurately, enhancing the overall quality of your recordings. So that's RCCTL set SND IOD flags minus S default dash M play comma MON and dash S MON and then RCCTL restart SND IOD. And you can confirm that your mic setup records and the desktop audio is coming from SND slash mon. Uh, for instance, you can do AUCAT F SND slash 0.mon O desktop audio.wave. That's the output. And the same is true for SND slash 1. You can do another recording for this one and uh, give it another output name. And same is true for the reverse, like testing your recording, what you just recorded, you want to listen to. And that's all AUCAT I and the wave you recorded. Screen recording with audio. The final step of your journey is to record the desktop screen while capturing all audio sources. This is where we bring everything together. Below, I'm outlining a straightforward FFmpeg command, complete with detailed explanations of each parameter to guide you through the process. Additionally, I've included true practical examples to demonstrate how this command can be applied in real world scenarios. These examples are designed to give us a clear understanding of how to effectively capture both your desktop screen and a rich tapestry of audio sources in your OpenBSD environment. So he provides the full FFmpeg, as said, with uh, comments. I'm not reading that here. It's quite uh, complex in terms of uh, a lot of lines, but um, it's well documented and you should find uh, what each of these does. In conclusion, I hope this guide has been illustrating and illuminating and practical for a more dynamic understanding of the process. Don't forget to check out the accompanying YouTube video. It showcases the actual recording process in action, giving you a real-life example of how these steps come together to create a seamless audio and video recording experience on OpenBSD. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. This yeah. Is... If you uh, want to do podcasting with VSD, um, that's one good way of doing it, especially if you've yeah, got some presentation to do with your screen. So, uh, yeah, well done. I like that. I'm going to uh, have a bit more of a detailed read later on. Moves us into the next article. This is just a brief one. Uh, this is uh, around a blog post for GhostBSD ARM64 porting from x86 code base. Uh, so this is around the HDMI audio sound patches in um, being imported into GhostBSD source code. Uh, and it's uh, the problems that have been solved. So the HDMI audio sound patches in GhostBSD source code, user Ghost 14 GhostBSD source uh, on January 19, 2024. It goes into uh, what patches uh, were manually applied, which is D36431, 378, and 37879, um, dated back uh, in 2022. 
it uh, just basically goes into uh, further detail. I'm not going to, it's a lot of code here with patches and things like that. So it's really just a heads up um, that that uh, has been uh, committed and solved particular problems. So um, yeah, check out the link in the show notes. Yeah, good to have. And really, if you're you know affected by that, then you can uh, now solve it. We have collected some beastie bits this week for you. And the first one is probably something that a lot of people have been looking forward to, the DSA removal from OpenSSH. And that's, of, of course, on the Undeadly blog. And that is, of course, uh, the removal of the going-going department. Uh, OpenSSH plans to remove support for DSA keys in the near future. This message describes our rationale, process, and proposed timeline. The rationale, well, well, DSA, as specified in the SSH version 2 protocol, is inherently weak, being limited to a 160-bit private key and use of the SHA-1 digest. It has, uh, or its estimated security level is less than 80 bits per symmetric equivalent, and they provide links to um, some publications uh, that have measured that. Uh, OpenSSH has disabled DSH keys by default since 2015, but has retained optional support for them. DSA is the only mandatory to implement algorithm in the SSH v2 RFC, mostly because alternative algorithms were encumbered by patents when the SSH v2 protocol was designed and specified. So uh, they say that they, after this announcement, they estimate that in March of 2024, DSA compile time optional enabled by default, and then in the June of 2024, or estimated around that time, DSA compile time optional, disabled by default. Okay, by that time it won't be there. And then 2025, uh, January, estimated DSA is removed from OpenSSH completely. Uh, these are very important to take note of. There's a lot of hardware-based SSH implementations like uh, switch vendors, uh, router vendors, and uh, IoT um, that uh, use DSA because of its low overhead. Um, however, you know, with this change coming, uh, you may not be able to access those devices. So um, I do know some vendors are making effort to provide different algos um, uh, for use in their devices. So, um, you know, make sure you check up on that because the last thing you want to be doing is uh, updating your system and then come 2025 and you try to log into those routers and switches and you can no longer manage them. So, yeah, um, yeah this is a warning that you need to take, take notice of and uh, action accordingly. And you have a whole year to implement the uh, switch to newer keys and more. Yeah, typically uh -huh. these were unlike they're not standard as a standard config. You actually had to explicitly use them, um, but people, you know, set up configuration files and you know forget that they they've got them defined in the configuration file, and then you know all of a sudden something just doesn't work. So, um, you know, this is putting it front and center to make sure that hey, this is what we're doing. It's not going to work after this time. So. We move into another one, which is a YouTube clip. Um, it's not uh, any text to read out to you today. It's more for you to go and, and look at in your own time. But it's basically the NetBSD starting up on the EVB PPC platform, which as some might know of the Nintendo Wii. So uh, basically, it basically goes through the, the steps of um, you know, loading the NetBSD kernel uh, and then it does the full D message and uh, drops you out to user land and the login prompt. So um, you can see uh, NetBSD coming up on the Wii platform. 
Why don't you take the next one as well? That's also NetBSD related. Uh, we've got a also a current performance patch from NetBSD uh, for the AMD 64 platform. Uh, so it goes, during the past couple of months, I've been working on reducing NetBSD AMD virtual machine kernel boot times to the minimum. Today, on the not so modern i5-7600K using QMU 6.2 with the micro VM machine type on a Linux Mint 21.2 host. NetBSD kernel can boot in less than 15 milliseconds. This is uh, from locore.s new, which is the PVH uh, entry point to just before handing over to the user land in init main.c. Before the performance additions, the same path took around 350 milliseconds. So that's, oh, that's uh, a oh. considerable drop. So um, uh, well done, Emil. Uh, this is uh, a really good one. Um, so the micro VM uses the following trimmed down kernel configuration. So uh, for building the kernel, so um, basically it's listed there in the post, um, what options are being brought up, um, what's being included. Uh, the performance branch is available here and is the GitHub link uh, to the perf um, tree and it implements the following features. Generic PVH boot, a new PV bus for hypervisors without PCI, MMIO backed devices, no PCI needed, uh, various performance fixes, PV clock to use the KVM time account and TS log framework from FreeBSD to trace the performance. Uh, so you can try it using QEMU, either on Linux with KVM, uh, and it's got the QEM startup statement there of how to bring it on board, or using NetBSD using the NVMM, which is um, uh, slower than the KVM they've stated here. Uh, so after setting up the kernel and image variables accordingly, the kernel can also be booted with yet to be merged PVH branch of the AWS Firecracker. Um, and then he's got the uh, how to start it with uh, the vmconfig.json file and the firecracker, uh, no API command to load that. Uh, firecracker must be killed to terminate the VM in no API mode. For anyone wanting to try this out without compiling, I've uploaded the kernel and minimal root to the disk at, and he's got the, the link there, um, which is to the, his own blog. Uh, feedback is always very welcome. Cheers, Emil. Yeah, great. And so uh, this is the last bit, and it's kind of a uh, little shelf self-advertisement, but not too big. And it's the November and December 2023 issue of the FreeBSD Journal, which is free and has now a browser-based edition or has some for a while or has been for a while. And it, you can now download also individual PDFs of each article if you want to read it further or... Uh, maybe on a different device, so we can look at them. And the overall team, like this is a, an issue that uh, the FreeBSD Journal comes out every second month. And uh, I'm kind of involved in the uh, editorial boards and look for authors and sometimes write uh, something myself. And this one is about FreeBSD 14. Uh, it provides articles by Juan Losh about Linux boot, booting into FreeBSD from Linux, very detailed. And another one from Doc Rapson about FreeBSD container images. Interesting. Then Dave Kottelhuber contributed a webhooks article, Kick Me Now with webhooks. 
a trip report from uh, our Oslo hackathon in October with a goofy picture of myself and some of the other people that were there. And um, Tom Jones also did a new ports computer interview with Joel Bodenman. Uh, John Baldwin, who wrote the foundation letter this time, introduces the whole thing. And Michael W. Lucas also provided a We Get Letters column. The dot zero release is a metaphorical tire change. So check out the full uh, issues and the past ones as well, who are also on the website. And if you want to write for the FreeBSD journal, then get in touch because it's super easy. You don't need to do any crazy, uh, you know, uh, formats or something plain text, uh, markdown, even word is accepted. So if you want to write and be published this way, it's fairly straightforward and very easy. That's why I do it and continue doing it uh, in this way. And you will be appearing in official publication, right? With ISBN and all. Yeah, they've got their own copy editors on on staff there. So, you know, it's just put your words down. They can um, pretty it up uh, how it needs to be presented in the journal. So, uh, yeah all things are considered when they're submitted to the journal. So get cracking. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Okay, we also get feedback, and this time we have one from uh, from Rick, and Rick writes the following. To Alan, Benedict, JT, and the whole BSD Now team, how does ZFS copy and write handle deleting large directories? Example, my user ports was out of date, and git fetch didn't work, so I did an RMRF user ports to remove it all, and later run git clone to recreate user ports. Near the end, I started to see device busy. My guess is ZFS was busy doing something in the background. I suspect RMS recursively deletes all the leave nodes first as it works its way up. This would give ZFS a ton of data to copy and write. Would it be feasible to ZF, uh, for ZFS to treat the top-level directory removal as a single transaction instead of hundreds of thousands of smaller transactions? How does ZFS handle append-only transactions to a file? If the last block of a file was enough room for the write operation, it seems to me ZFS needs not create a new block with the official or the original data plus the appended data. Instead, it need only record the new versus old file length and append the data into the existing block. There's enough information to roll back the transaction without swapping the last block. 
I can't read the ZFS source code well enough to determine if this is the case. Love your show. Regards, Rick. Yes. Yeah, so with this, um, you, you've identified basically everything, and the engineering of ZFS is basically, um, you know, as as it is uh, to reduce the computational um, overhead, but also um, ensure that you know data. Uh, consistency is its number one priority. So, um, you know, these are design concepts that went into it. And, you know, there's there's certain things that, you know, had to be, you know, put aside uh, for speed uh, benefits uh, in regards to ZFS. Now, the way you're probably doing it is I wouldn't actually do it that way. I'd actually make a data set for ports. And then that way, um, if you need to, uh, nuke ports you can actually just delete the data set and recreate it again you don't have to worry about trying to um, you know delete all the files within that data set it, it and it's it's so much faster by you know being able to delete the data set and it, it effectively does what you want it to do um, start from the top down if you delete the data set it deletes it from top down but if you're actually deleting files within the data set that's basically going from the the bottom up so yeah, you're you're right in your description there, but yeah, I would de- definitely not be um, using um, you know ports in the same slices as user. I'd keep a separate data set and then set that data set correctly uh, for its uh, record size for the size of the files that are going in that. That too, and don't forget the compression because this is just text files, the make files, and that compresses very well. And another trick could be if you don't make these big jumps in the ports and you can just create a snapshot of an empty initials checkout and then roll back in case you want to clear out user ports for whatever reason and you just return to that snapshot where everything was empty but if, of course over time this snapshot will grow very big because you add more to it every time you update the ports tree but that's another way of getting back to an empty state if you want to have that often yeah, and you know you've got other features like uh, ZFS Move, um, so you can move your data sets around. So if you want to have you know ports, ports one, ports two, all, all mm. those sort of things, or yeah. you can use cloning um, as another way of um, you know ZFS clone your data set. So then you can have you know work on multiple different data sets and then promote the data set later on. There's many ways of doing it. Um, it's it's thinking outside the standard uh, file mentality that we've we've had ingrained in our our heads for over decades um, to doing it the ZFS way, the most efficient way of doing it in ZFS. So that's 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 just my take on it. Is um, yeah, just think about it a bit differently rather than the way you've traditionally done it in typically Linux or or old Unix ways. Yeah, and if you say how does ZFS handle ZFS append only transactions to a file, I, I would definitely say that ZFS still works with copy on writes, creating a new copy and a new location on a new block without overwriting anything or adding to something existing and then just links the two together somehow. But I would not know the implementation details as probably Alan would and he could definitely say something more about it. But I always go ZFS is copy on write, nothing gets overwritten or any location gets written twice. You always get copied to a new location and then the new version lives over there. And in case you have a snapshot, the old version is kept around. And if not, then that gets that old block gets recycled. And I think that's just the same with um, append-only files. Or append, mm. uh, that, that, yeah, that's correct, Benedict. It's a safety thing. 
um, yeah. because you want to make sure that that data is well and truly committed to a you know safe area of the disk before removing the previous use block. Uh, and you know, there's many many ways a system can fail and take your data down with it. So um, it's it's they're all safeguards. These are all safeguards mechanisms um, to ensure your data remains 100% consistent. I still haven't played around with ZFS uh, a feature where you can combine multiple transactions into one, where you can write a little Lua script to you know say, I want to do this and then that and then that other thing and then something else with ZFS, in, but use this as one big atomic transaction where you do potentially a lot of changes or many... Uh, complicated changes in one. Yeah, but I that was, also had never had the need to do have that yet. So my yeah, storage needs are probably there's, uh, there's not storage that requirements for it, and um, I think Alan said it like many years ago why it came about, and it's usually to when you've got large data sets and large amounts of snapshots. I know I accidentally came across um, where my snapshots weren't pruning correctly once, Aye. and um, <laughs> yeah, there was a. Uh, huge amount of snapshots <laughs> listing took a long time <laughs> oh it was like i just stopped the listing and it's just like okay <laughs> i know what i've got to do sort of thing and just started executing the the, the pruning the pruning technique so yeah luckily they have the percentage indicator where you can say everything after this or everything before this uh you know variable or this asterisk of sorts should be listed or deleted that saves a lot of individual listing of files that's and that's what the, this feature that you're talking about uh, came about was uh, so the parallels, parallel transactions can happen because you know deleting a a snapshot is relatively straightforward for it, but you don't want the the full action to be completed before moving on to deleting the next snapshot. So um, you know setting that up in parallel, um, so then the transactions can be handled in parallel, uh, is is what that's all about. Yeah, if anyone else knows this, and you, your name is not Alan Jude, even though if you would reply, we would also not complain, uh, then let us know uh, to feedback at bsdnata.tv, and we'll be happy to link back to the show and uh, so that both Rick, we, and the rest of the world know about what this uh, uh, is done or how this is done in ZFS. We would all be much smarter for it. Uh, but definitely thanks for your uh, question, Rick. Uh, and yeah, hopefully that uh, solves your uh, user ports uh, thing and you don't delete too deeply. And that takes not too long now when that you know how to create a data set for it, compress that thing. And if you only delete user ports, then just ZFS destroy minus RV and, you know, RVN, do a dry run first, just in case. And if you're sure that's only this data set that should be deleted, then just go ahead with that. All right. That's um, it. That's, that's it for today. Yeah. Thank you all for your attendance. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, we do enjoy bringing the show to you each each and every week. Um, so, yeah, as Benedict said, if you've got any feedback, we love reading it. Um, sometimes it doesn't make it to the show because it's just a general comment. We love comments too, um, where we can improve the show. So please give us that feedback at feedback at bsdnl.tv. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of BSD Now. Yeah, thanks for listening. Cue the music. <laughs> <laughs>